Well, we had a couple week break from Fresh Tracks Weekly, but we're back at it now. Uh, I've been out chasing turkeys, doing some fishing. Uh, some of it we called work, uh, and then some of it was just straight vacation. So it's good to be out in the field doing a little hunting, a little fishing. Two weeks ago, Karen and I were able to get out for a weekend hunt with some friends, chase some turkeys. We called in a few, which was awesome. The first one ended up circling around behind us, so unfortunately Kara couldn't get a shot, but I, I had a shot at 10 yards, so that was pretty great, filling my second tag of the season. Uh, and then Kara's turkey was also pretty fun. We had turkeys gobbling all around us, and some hens started walking by, and eventually this guy got close enough for a shot. After that, I then met up with my parents, and we continued to chase turkeys, explored some new areas, ended up finding a few more birds. Uh, we ended up roosting a tom, and it was just the perfect picture call-in scenario that you always want to happen, but never seems to actually work out. We set up in the dark, my dad let out a few calls, the tom flew down, he hammered back at his calls, came into 19 yards strutting, uh, we got a show and everything. Unfortunately for my mom and I, we were set up a little bit away from my dad, and we didn't have a shot, but my dad had a clear view, so he got his first bird of the year, which is pretty awesome. That hunt happened so quickly that my mom kept joking that it takes longer to tell the story of the hunt than the time that the actual hunt took, um, which is probably true. <laughs> Midday we located another Tom and we tried a couple setups on but could never coax him in and I'm pretty impatient so I just reverted to my spot and stock mode, ended up sneaking in and getting a shot. Funny enough though, I completely missed the first shot but he didn't know where the shot came from and ran directly at me so I shot him super close on the run right next to me. Sometimes it just works out that way. But after that, we had some super cool encounters. We could never quite get my mom a shot at a Tom, but I had a ton of fun exploring some new areas with them. It was good to just hang out with my parents for a while. Right from that hunt, we rolled into a quick shed hunting trip, met up with Kara and a few of our friends, and uh, didn't find a whole lot of sheds. I found one uh, smaller shed, but not skunked. So that was a win in my book. And then we did our crew hunt, which was super fun. We had everyone in the office, except for Michael, who we need to publicly shame for not coming on the turkey hunt. He, he was busy editing at any Finn Goes episode, so he didn't make it. But everyone else in the office, we went out and chased turkeys and it was a blast. Jason and I ran cameras the whole time while Blake, David, and Nicole hunted. Randy still wasn't quite okay to shoot a gun, so he was just there for the team building and moral support aspect. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. They said to get out and gobble, so. Do loud noises. Okay. I feel like they definitely would have responded if they were here. I thought it was great. <laughs> David, he passed on, he's a trophy. <laughs> turkey hunter too he passed on four four jakes yesterday right yeah i didn't want to shoot him in the back of the head <laughs> we laughed a lot had some good food we killed some turkeys i won't go into the stories too deeply because we're gonna have some videos coming up soon of that hunt anyway a lot of turkey action this year i'm ready for some bear hunting now um, which will be coming up shortly karen and i also did manage to get out for the first time of the year in the boat and went out fishing uh, I caught my biggest walleye to date, which was really exciting. We also caught a few bass, a few trout, but Michael has a lot more going on in the realm of fishing, so we got to go check in with him. Welcome back to the Fishing Corner, everybody's favorite segment of Fresh Tracks Weekly. I know it. I know it's everybody's favorite. We're back. It's been a few weeks. So happy to have you guys here. First and foremost, all things fishing. Uh, anything goes our first episode lake trout went out this past Monday you guys should check it out and we're also doing a giveaway with it so we're giving away a rod and reel combo and uh, this right here this custom big Hank Yeti bottle 
the only place you can get it is right here. Like you cannot get this anywhere else. It's a big deal. So the way you enter to that is, I'm sure Marcus will put a link to the Instagram post, but basically go watch the video, come back to this Instagram post, tag your fishing buddies, and tell me what your favorite moment was. We'll pick a winner for that next week. Next Monday, Carpin, episode two of Anything Goes, comes out, and I really want to push everybody to go watch it. It's some of my most favorite content I've made out here in the West with my boy Marcus working for Fresh Tracks. Man, it's a great time. We had a blast. So yeah, I didn't show up to the crew turkey hunt. Sorry about that. It seems like you guys did fine without me, one. And two, I'm, like I said, really excited about the Anything stuff. I was busy working on that last episode which I think is one of the coolest episodes out of the three. So that's my excuse. Anyways, so now we got all that out of the way. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I've been doing the past couple weeks. Two weeks ago, I think was the last time we had one of these. Headed out for a, a nice long weekend with my girlfriend Cassie, per usual. We did some bass fishing. We got some good clips for you guys to see right now. Oh, you didn't want to show it to the camera? Oh, sorry. That's right. So... You need a, new, a bait? Is it gone? They, they sink. The Yamasinka? Oh, yeah. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> nice! <laughs> oh! <laughs> that was just freaking... Wacky worms flying all over the place. <laughs> A jerk bait, wacky worm, and some crankbaits were kind of getting the job done. Cassie, first time ever using a jerk bait. If you've ever used one before, it's a good time when they're eating it. Yeah, watched him eat it. Nice, Cassie. Last weekend, went to the fabled Henry's Fork on like an impromptu trip. It was kind of cool. We roughed it, made friends with some new guys, and uh, Fishing was medium. Water level was a little bit high for my liking, but we thought we could get some on. We got some on streamers on the bank. We got a few nymphing, high water kind of nymphing tactics this time of year. Wire worms, worms in general, rubber legs, black leeches. Man, that stuff is real good. Day number 52 today. I'm going to go out, fish for some bass per usual this time of year. Like I said in the other ones, springtime, bass fishing. Once that high water comes down, we're going back to the dry flies, fly fishing, good times. Anyways, I'm going to send it back to Marcus, but I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. It's going to be sweet May. It's an amazing time to be alive. We'll see you next week. All right, on to some news. In previous episodes, we mentioned the fight over the marijuana tax revenue in Montana and how the legislature and constituents had this bill pushed forward, SB 442, that it was largely a compromise bill where everyone kind of got a little piece of the pie. Well, that bill passed the legislature with 130 out of 150 lawmakers in support. But right before the Senate adjourned for the session, Governor Greg Gianforte vetoed the bill. The legislature can override that veto with a two-thirds vote, but because of the timing of the veto and the fact that the Senate was still in session when it happened, but they didn't immediately act on it, it has become unclear whether they can vote to override it. Many politicians on both sides are frustrated how the Gianforte administration handled the event. The sponsor of the bill, Mike Lang, wrote a letter to the Secretary of State's office requesting that lawmakers be able to be polled by mail on a vote to override the veto. 
A letter was also sent to Secretary of State Christy Jacobson requesting that they pull the members of the legislature that had over 2,500 signatures from supporting Montanans. We'll keep following the story to see how it progresses, if they'll actually get a vote to override the veto. In Washington state, three new gun laws were recently signed into law by Governor Jay Inslee. The first is a ban on the sale, distribution, and manufacture of over 50 types of semi-automatic weapons. However, it does not affect those who already own those types of weapons. The second law will now require a 10-day waiting period when buying a firearm from when the purchasers first initiate the background check to when they can take possession of the firearm, along with requiring proof of having taken a firearm safety course within the last five years. And the third bill will hold gun manufacturers accountable for any negligent sales, which includes promoting conversions of guns into illegal products, marketing to children, selling to people prohibited from possessing firearms, allowing straw purchases, and selling to dealers who are known to act in dangerous or irresponsible manners. On both sides of this issue, we continue to see the typical debate that we've seen for years, and the National Rifle Association and the National Shooting Sports Foundation have already filed a lawsuit challenging the ban on the semi-automatic firearms as an unconstitutional measure. This will make Washington the 10th state to ban assault-style weapons. In Colorado, a case concerning stream access has been taken up by the Colorado Supreme Court, which could lead to a significant change in stream access in the state. We've mentioned this story in the past, but now that it's been added to the Colorado Supreme Court docket, we're getting closer to a conclusion. Colorado has notorious strict stream access laws where landowners can own different pieces of the river, including the surface of the water, the stream bed, and the water itself. But in this particular case, fisherman Roger Hill is suing several landowners, arguing that the landownership does not extend to the stream bed. Years ago, Hill had been fishing on a particular hole on the Arkansas River when a landowner threw rocks at him and threatened him with prosecution for trespass. And then later, Hill's friend, while fishing that same hole, had an adjacent landowner discharge a gun in his direction. So the main decision that'll be made by the Supreme Court will be whether or not this particular spot on the Arkansas River was, quote, navigable for commercial use at the time of Colorado's statehood. If so, then it will be considered property of the state held in trust for the public. Conservation groups are hopeful that if Roger Hill wins this case, that it could provide future opportunities to improve stream access in other parts of the state. American Whitewater, the Colorado Rivers Outfitters Association, and Backcountry Hunters and Anglers have filed an amicus brief in support of Hill in this case. A recent study published in the Journal of Animal Ecology looked at mountain lion predation on feral burrows and has been making some controversial claims about the impact on ecosystems. Largely, state wildlife managers have considered wild horses and burrows as being an invasive species, having negative impacts on the ecosystems, trampling and consuming vegetation, outcompeting and displacing native wildlife like pronghorn, bighorn sheep, and mule deer. But the researchers in this new study are making claims contrary to that ideology, saying that with mountain lions as a natural predator to burrows, it could replicate ancient roles of a healthy predator-prey relationship. They put a total of 24 trail cameras out at different water sources looking at the difference between water sources near campsites with high human presence and then water sources in more remote areas without human presence. Looking through these trail camera pictures, they found burrows to be much more active near the high human traffic areas due to humans likely displacing the lions while the burrows were only active during the middle of the day in the more remote areas with the theory that they're avoiding lion predation at night. So with this information, they went on to make the claim that when lions are around, they trample less vegetation around these water sources, but then they also made the claim that when lions were absent, the excess trampling of the wetlands was actually a good thing because they made it easier for other animals to utilize the water source. It almost seems as though the researchers found a way to spin the presence of burrows into a positive no matter the circumstance. The paper has been met with some heavy skepticism, stating that the researchers make some pretty wide claims without a lot of evidence to support it. 
This kind of reminds me of a previous paper talking about trophic cascades on wolves in Yellowstone, making the claims that wolves change rivers through their predation, changing all of the dynamics down the line. Predators undoubtedly impact ecosystems, but the Blaken statements of widespread effects are hard to buy into with all of the complexities involved. But this serves as a great segue into our deeper dive where we are discussing non-native versus native species. What does that mean exactly, and why do we care? What are you going to buy? I'm buying a pellet gun. I'm shooting all those collar doves, those Eurasian collar yeah, doves no that limit. coo out in my yard. They're pretty good. I'm going to grain them in. I'm, I'm just going to bring a pile of corn or grain, and I'm just going <laughs> to boom, boom, boom. <laughs> starlings, too. I wonder no. how good starlings taste. I don't know. I they did, don't I, look tasty. I think they don't look tasty. <laughs> the neighbors would probably get mad at me if I shot starlings, and they'll probably get mad at me if I really? shoot Eurasian collar doves, but that falls under the category of I don't give a damn. <laughs> Your neighbors uh, like the starlings? I don't know. No. I they haven't just asked them. They just, they're like birds. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I like birds, but I don't like invasive birds. Yeah, so that's the topic of today's deeper dive is invasive Well, and, and also non-native. And I think those yeah. two terms are not always the same. And it kind of depends. Everyone defines everything differently. But So there's non-native species, both that we hunt and don't hunt. In terms of wildlife, fish, plants, whatever. And so I think a lot of people lump them into either non-native or invasive. And I think the, the basic premise is if it's invasive, it's like easily adapts to an area and just takes over and is often considered detrimental. Or non-native is more subjective. And it's kind of like, well, we kind of like them. Or some people kind of like them. Other people might not <laughs> like them. And that's where it gets like super interesting. And there's like a lot of cultural influence that we just – decide what we like in an area yeah i'm a complete hypocrite about it so is michael when it comes to fish oh yeah i love fishing for non-native species so do i yeah me too and we've talked about that a bunch in the anyfins episodes yep. where the anything goes fishing series where uh you know some systems are so altered that it only makes sense for the non-native species to exist there or you know largely it's just a totally different system and it's just when you dam rivers and temperatures increase and as the habitat changes that's just the way it is and so it's either that or i mean we can't have the native fish species living in those areas yeah, and there's some examples everybody here likes the turkey hunt except for randy and yeah. those are not native to montana right yeah they're not native but then like do you know anyone who is like super mad about turkey maybe yeah, some people live it, maybe some people who live in like towns <laughs> yeah. they're like annoyed by them gobbling and crapping all over their sidewalks but um i don't know that so that one's like that's an example of one that like largely people are okay with and it doesn't seem to like impact at least not that we're aware of currently there's no like major implication to like habitat or another species that turkeys are you know messing with so we decide that's okay. Yeah, or they're taking the bugs away from some sort of other bird. Yeah, they're I out mean, there you crushing bugs. Yeah, stealing Those all the farmers' hay. Love grasshoppers. <laughs> no, um, well, so another example of a species that has adapted as we change the agriculture, like the ringneck pheasant. Yeah. So those yeah. things are everywhere, and largely people love them. But they've kind of just filled in that niche as we changed it, you know. Right. We created an artificial habitat, yeah. which is not very conducive for the native species that were there. Mostly the prairie chickens, the sage grouse, and sharp tail. Yeah. And Although the sharp tail, interestingly, have done a much better job 
at adapting and utilizing agriculture, like you'll find them, they feed in grain fields all the time. Right. It's funny, my dad and I were talking about this the other day about running into um, sharp tails just out in the native prairie, and it, it almost felt weird because we were so <laughs> used to seeing them in, in uh, you know, CRP fields close to grain, feeding on grain, and it's just like, oh, no, this is actually their native habitat. Like this is yeah. where they used to be more often. But they're, they still exist in those areas, but just at lower densities. And they just really adapted well to agriculture. Where sage grouse have completely failed at yeah, adapting. They're not, they're they not just, doing great, right? They're not doing great. I mean, they're doing okay where there's really good intact habitat of sagebrush ecosystems that are still, like, you know, in good shape. Then Which they they're, that's not happening a lot, right? Well, like, there's, there's some, you know. There's a, there's some pretty big chunks in Montana and Wyoming, Idaho, but you know they're large like range wide huge declines and it's I mean we were largely. running into a bunch of them last year deer hunting and yeah that was probably, the first time yeah. I've ever and seen probably some like I would, intact I would habitat think that there was the same for me too yeah, yeah there's time probably seen. sage there, there because was. what people don't realize <laughs> is in the 40s 50s and even 60s across the Great Plains and the if you want to call it the High Plains. We sprayed the hell out of sagebrush to yeah, kill it and why? convert it to dry land crop uh-huh. ground. And so when you wipe out that much sagebrush, you're going to have an impact on native species like pronghorn, like sage grouse, like all the things. We, we probably don't even know all the impacts we had, but that's the human element of saying, well, we, we kind of have the mechanisms here to do this stuff, and we do it. And... When you say pheasants, I love eating pheasants. Oh yeah, I, I'm I'm so excited about the work that pheasants forever does in these altered habitats. That I had Howard Vincent, the CEO of Pheasants Forever, on the podcast that'll air here pretty soon because they've been doing amazing work for conservation within the confines of altered, humanly altered landscape. Oh, for sure. And well, Pheasants Forever is an interesting example because they've expanded out. You know, to quail and all kinds of stuff. Well, yeah, but and even sage grouse, and so they they'll do habitat improvements for straight up native habitat that you know might not be prime ringneck pheasant habitat, but it's going to be great stuff for sharp tails and sage grouse, and so and like songbirds and everything else. So it's pretty pretty interesting how they've a non-native species has been the the genesis of a lot of conservation because you you look at what's happened to. Uh, in Nebraska, Kansas, the Dakotas, western Minnesota, to prairie chickens. Right. I mean, we don't think about it here in Montana because I don't know that they were ever native right here, maybe far eastern Montana, but prairie chickens are in the crapper. Oh, yeah. You talk about, like, it loss of yeah. the vast majority. Wait, of, when you say prairie chicken, is that, like, what they're actually called? Or, yeah. Or yeah. The greater and lesser prairie chicken. Yeah, there's two different uh, subspecies. new every day. Yeah. And I'm not as familiar with that story as much as I, I know that habitat loss is the main thing, mm-hmm. though. I mean, there's right. just like virtually no habitat in a lot of their historic range. Yeah, I was in Kansas on a white-tailed deer hunt, and I flushed two prairie chickens. Oh, that's cool. And the camera guy must have thought I had won the lottery or something. Man, I was hooting <laughs> and yelling. It was the first <laughs> wild prairie chickens I'd ever encountered. Wait, so are they just like a grouse-looking bird? Yeah, yeah, they look similar to gotcha. the, you know this different. I'll have to Google it later. But yeah, look up a prairie chicken dance. It's pretty <laughs> sweet. Yeah, so uh, that's suffered from, from human activity. But in, in the waterfall world where Jace operates and in the fish world you operate, oh, Michael, yeah. 
I mean, almost every fish that I fish for is <laughs> non-native. Yeah. I mean, I mean you fish like, for cutthroat, but. But not a lot. Yeah. I mean, out of all the days last year, there's a handful. Right. Five, six. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, so rainbow trout's like one of the super interesting ones because there are a handful of places where there's like the, what is it, the Columbia Red Band one? Is yeah, native. there's a Red Band one up in the Northwest. And there's a few places where they are native, but largely, I feel like you could classify them as an invasive species. But then most people and fishing cultures love them, and so yeah. we manage for them, and they and like we we like them, and they filled this niche where you know the cutthroat used to live largely and. And just, they're the dominant species now. But we, we even, like them. We manage yeah, for them. Even walleyes and, and oh yeah, and yeah, um, yeah. So we've talked about that in the past. But the interesting ones for big game species, the big one, uh, well, south of us would be wild horses. Although you know what is, I I love this. I looked up on the <laughs> Montana Field Guide, Montana FWP, or well, I think it's FWP that puts out the that field guide. But uh, they list them as feral horse. Yeah, yeah, yes. there we go. So yeah. nice. That's in awesome. Nevada this spring, I don't know if it passed, they want to make the feral horse their state animal. Oh, it's like, man. are you kidding me? No. I just read Nevada's uh, draft of their – Nevada does a great job of issuing its uh, big game status report. It's 150 pages mm-hmm. of every species in every area. And it says, here's what's happening. Here's the habitat stuff. Here's the concerns. The number one concern for every species on every page is feral horses. Every one of them. And then their legislature wants to make them the state animal. Yeah. What's the waterfowl world, Jace? You got any feral? Yeah, what's the, are there any invasive? I've never really thought about waterfowl in the, like. Scheme of, like. Scheme of uh, non-native. Yeah, I don't. Is there any examples? It's kind of interesting because, like, those, like, waterfowl migrate, right? So, like, they're all, like. They're probably all native to everywhere. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the only thing I can think of, and I, I don't Snowies. even know if they'd, like, there's some, like, European and South African birds. I don't think you'd ever find them here. But Yeah, occasionally you get, like, a Eurasian widgeon showing up. and But that's, yeah. like, a, you know, a unique circumstance where yeah. birders get excited and go, go document. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, well, the thing that's interesting with waterfowl, and they've been native to a lot of this land, but that have adapted and almost could be considered invasive now would be snow geese and Canada geese in certain areas. But then in other areas, they're not doing as well, but it's largely because of agriculture and all of the, you know, this huge food sources throughout the, you know, the middle of United States that they just have a ton of spots to stop over, eat grain and just like they do super well. But then when they fly North to their, to their uh, summer range, they just absolutely destroy the tundra up there. And they just, like, there's not enough to go around. So they just, they're not dying as readily as they used to <laughs> when they would do these long migrations. And so, oh. but well, that, that one's also a- interesting because they're, I mean, as far as native landscapes go, they're almost heavily or solely reliant on all agricultural, like, oh yeah, rather than, Say a native landscape. Well, and they used to, I mean, they used to make a living without all of that right. rain, yeah. but they just didn't exist in those kind of numbers. Yeah. Right. And they existed in different uh, densities of each, like pintails yeah. for a while benefited from certain agricultural practices in the Great Plains parts of Canada. And then they changed some of those practices, and all of a sudden the pintail numbers go. Oh. So it's. Yeah. But it's some well, of the traps, the non native things 
of the world, like Nutria. Yeah, I was going to say, Nutria is a really interesting one that I don't know a ton about. Like, now they got is that Tritus? What's is that? that Tritus, like, in the water, aquatic stuff? What did you call it's it? It's like Nutria. a Nutria. They're like it's a little kind of mini... giant muskrat, right? Yeah. Oh. Like yeah, in between a South beaver America. and a I wonder if I, we saw something this weekend on the Henry's Fork. We were fishing, and... uh we were arguing if it was a beaver or a muskrat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it wasn't a nutrient. Okay. I think they're concerned. I mean, I haven't looked recently, but I know that they're just expanding and oh, yeah. getting to different areas. Yeah, they brought them into Oregon for some experimental purpose, and now they got them yeah, they everywhere. Just it's like eat the vegetation along the banks, cause erosion, cause a lot of problems. Way, um, way more damaging than muskrats. Yeah. Which North America, we had muskrats. South America, I believe, is where they had nutria. And you start mixing those, and you end up with problems. Yeah. Um, so it, back to wild horses. I think that's a really interesting one because they have just like been. Th- that's been an example that I would consider an invasive. They're an issue because yeah. they just outcompete the native wildlife. They just completely like wreck the the native rangelands and right. Uh, yeah, just take up water resources all around in this. I don't know. That's a tough one because no, it's not a tough one. Yeah. Well, but I it's mean, not talk about the you, you know more about this than I do. But the, what is it? The Wild Horse and Burrow, Burrow Act of nineteen seventy four. I think it was. We were supposed to have twenty six thousand wild horses and burros in the West in certain population areas. Yeah. Now we're like pushing a hundred thousand plus. We got fifty some thousand of them in corrals that we've rounded up and captured. So, if you want to increase your odds of going hunting for deer mule deer or pronghorn or even in some cases elk and wild sheep in the inner mountain west you need to get on the bandwagon to do something about these feral horses yeah and that's a that one's super tough because of cultural influence and people love horses they view them as a pet they're just like this cool looking animal out there on the landscape and it is like they know enough to love them but not enough to know how much like harm they're really doing yeah and a lot of people think these are like the old spanish horses that came over <laughs> most of these are just horses that people are like oh man i didn't realize they'd be this much they just let them go so there's and then like they just some, breed like crazy yeah out, you know and and i admire these horses for being able to make a living in such a harsh setting it, it's it's fascinating when you look at them just as a species that's trying to adapt but when you look at the bigger picture, it's like, let's get rid of these things. Yeah. Let, let's just. Open season all year. <laughs> let's I mean, do it. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, because other countries eat horses, right? Oh, yeah. Like, it's, yeah. A total, it's a cultural thing. Yeah. yeah take, strip yeah. away, like, all the cultural or, like, feelings you have, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Let's do it. It's food. R- really what people are making an affirmative statement when they're advocating for feral horses is, I value my feelings for feral horses are way more than they are for our native wildlife. That is what they are saying, either implicitly or explicitly. Yeah. And another interesting parallel to that is feral cats. Just the domestic house cats that get out. Billions at, of yeah, birds. Billions of birds. Billions yeah. of birds. <laughs> they yeah. just kill so many little songbirds and all sorts yeah. of stuff. It's not good. It's, it's not really good. not good in no. a lot of areas. Like, so feral cats, those ones, you know what? There is open season. You can shoot feral cats. Yeah. Yeah, but why can't you shoot feral horses? Well, because of the wild you know, horse. Because of the feelings. There's no, there's no some, feral cat wait, act so yet. What, horse, no, yeah, someone's going to watch this, Marcus, and there's going to be the feral cat and feline act or something. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It, they, it does evoke a lot of emotion because everyone has 
domestic cats as pets. And so, Not me. I'm allergic to those bastards. Yeah, I, no, I, I don't like cats but do either, you, but a lot of people do. And so when I you know. talk about just going out and shooting all the cats or even just convincing people that maybe you shouldn't let your cat outside right. all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> Well, yeah. and and all I think it's like Australia. There are big hat hunters out there. Yeah, they, they get after them. Yeah, but they also there's sounds like a pretty big problem out there as well with the feral cats. But it is here too. Wait, so why did the, they, they've normalized the cat hunting a little bit? <laughs> what, was, what was the purpose of the the Wild Horse and Burrow Act? Like why? Why? People because like some Hollywood movie stars were tired of people, state agencies removing them from the landscape. Huh. So but they, they were never like that. We. Did we have native horses here no. ever? Well, before the Pleistocene. Okay. They do. Yeah, there are people who try to make that argument. But right. It's like. They came over on a boat. Yeah, they yeah. came over on a boat. They didn't swim here. <laughs> they didn't cross on the Bering Land Bridge. They didn't cross across the Arctic frozen yeah. ice. Well, and the Just, problem is there's no, there's an, I mean, occasionally, but virtually no predators for zero. them. I mean, like maybe a mountain huge. lion is going to kill yeah. one every once in a while. Introduce but like, the grizzly bear to Nevada. I don't even think they would, it, you <laughs> yeah. know. I, yeah, I feel like the grizzly not. would opt it's for huge. an easier target for the most part. But, yeah, I mean, like humans, could, like Michael said, they could be a pretty good predator on wild horses and manage them. But, kill them uh, all. Kill them all. <laughs> Quite honest, I mean, I'm to the point of seeing what has happened to our native wildlife and the long-term damage to the landscapes those native wildlife need because of horses, is going to take centuries to re- recover because those are very fragile landscapes. They don't get a lot of moisture. They don't have a lot of plant rotation, a lot of nutrient rotation. Those landscapes where those horses are living are altered for at least 100 years or longer. Yeah. Yeah. My, my like, mindset on this totally changed when we were on that Ray White hunt and in, in Nevada. Nevada and, like, we're, like, set up on a water hole. It's, like... 95 degrees out it's so hot i'm like chugging water i'm watching a pronghorn like struggle to get to some water and then just three horses come out of nowhere and just run them off it's, yeah it's brutal yeah. yeah i've seen that happen so, so often yeah. especially with pronghorn yeah. Yeah. yeah they got no chance yeah but anyhow back to those eurasian collar doves <laughs> i eat those suckers yeah they're good and I, and I would eat horses too if they'd let me if they give I me bet a horses t- are delicious yeah. yeah i would eat it uh, I mean, we'd have a big, you know, equine barbecue yeah, here. Throw them in the crock pot. Yeah. <laughs> well, put them out on a trailer. Yeah. So the other big one is uh, wild boar, which is a yeah. super yeah. interesting one. Yeah, we're, no, we probably have them in Montana right now. Like, I, I think they're, I think they're so. it sounds huh. like they're coming. I'm going I've been from like north or south of us. Or from north. Canada. Yeah, 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 from Canada. Canada. So they've been in Canada for a while now, and they're just like, yeah, come, they're going to come in from Alberta. Nobody like, cares about shooting those by the on. boatload. No. Well, the thing is that they do in certain areas. And so it's like even though they are largely invasive and they wreck stuff, there's now industry for them, like in Texas and California. If you, like, look up a pig hunt, you know, if they were really that big of a an issue, you wouldn't be charged money, a bunch oh, of money yeah. to go on a pig hunt. So, like, there's very few, like, come to my ranch and shoot all my pigs type of situation it's like no oh, no we're gonna market this and we're gonna make money off of it well, if you so, live in montana and you see one shoot one and if you get in trouble i'll pay your fine well that's the thing that is interesting is like i think i forget what it is but i'm pretty sure some states have come out and made it illegal to hunt them for the sole purpose of 
because they don't want industry forming around it. Because as soon as you yeah. can hunt them, then there's now a value associated with I, it. And so pi- private landowners <laughs> or whoever will just start, like, you know, advocating, like, well, I can make money off this, you know? And so it, I think that the most effective way it sounds like is you you systematically go in and remove them. Like, we, you know, like you go in and you trap the crap out of them and yeah. you just take them out of the landscape. And, but even then, it's hard to actually, like, knock them back. So it's a that's an interesting one. It'll be interesting to see what Montana does because it's coming. It's going to happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start an organization where we pay bounties for anyone who brings in a pig hoof or something. I don't know, though. I feel like the bounty system. I, yeah. Yeah. Hmm, huh? That's another. What, what that's a good like podcast topic because there's like the yeah, what you, is the fish what the foundation for fish and wildlife management or whatever that's playing paying out wolf. of Idaho. Yeah, so they're paying like bounties on wolves. So that's like that's you a don't super, like it. It sounds like I it. I don't know enough about it, but it, my gut tells me I don't like it because it's like, like selling of wildlife or like against the North American model. I don't know. I just feel like they're. I don't know. It'll be interesting. Like. I think it's a it's a really interesting topic. We should talk about it. I want yeah. I, I need to research it. Is really yeah. what I need research to do. Research Utah paying all that money for bounties also for yeah. coyotes. Yeah, no, because they're the only state that does it. No, it's interesting, and like I think people's I, I don't know. I think they're trying to make the landscape a better place. They're trying to help ungulate populations, but it's just like, is this the right way to do it? I don't know, and. I don't know. It's a very interesting topic and one that I need to research more. Well, I think when it comes to invasives, if you were to categorize where the most invasives live, I think aquatic invasives are probably as high as anywhere. You look at the Asian carp on the Ohio River and places like that. You look at all the invasive species in the Great Lakes. They're Maybe super it's because easy to we... What's that? It's just like they're super easy to transport yeah, as well. Right. Like, and they're very adaptable. And I think we like to eat a lot of them. We People even keep fish for pets. I, whatever, I guess, if you want to. Uh, and so we end up with a lot of movement of species, aquatic species, that create a lot of problems. Oh, yeah, for sure. I was also me talking about, like, equative, uh, or aquatic, like, vegetation, like, zebra mussels, like, yeah. stuff like that. Oh, yeah, like, that's yeah. a huge That's what I meant by, like, transporting, gotcha. like, not so much the fish. Yeah, I mean, that states are now very, like, worried about that. They have check stations for mandatory watercraft check stations. Like, I know, pretty sure Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, at least, and only because I'm familiar, I'm sure it exists in other states, but. I drove, like, four hours the other weekend, got stopped three times. Yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah, and I wasn't All pissed. Right. It was like, it was like, th- I was like, thanks for yeah. looking. But I guess like a lot of people are not super cooperative. Like That's, they're, they're. Saying, I just don't like, understand why. I mean, it's just yeah, like, yeah. it's like if you have them, it's not like you get in trouble. They're like, okay, like it's like right. an educational moment. We'll clean your boat and get rid of the. Yeah. And they're usually looking for at least in Montana zebra, zebra mussels or Eurasian water milfoil. Yeah. Milfoil. Milfoil. That's yeah. some good stuff for some. Bass. I mean, there's a reason <laughs> I, I go back to Minnesota every year and I don't drag my boat back there. Because Minnesota has a lot of these invasive things. And I don't want to bring them back to Montana. My boat, other than one trip to Wyoming, has never been out of the state of Montana. Yeah. I could, but I'm worried as hell about, I don't want to be patient zero bringing zebra mussels. Well, that's a lot of it's education of just like making sure you check. Like there's certain spots where that stuff usually gets, you know, transported on boat trailers and on your props and and stuff. And so just, yeah, just inspect, inspect clean, dry, right? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Clean, drain, dry. Clean, drain, dry. And yeah. Um, Yeah. They said that I, I read a little article on that 
and I think it was like less than a hundred last year that they found, but they found like you know like that's mm-hmm. that's good. Still, yeah. yeah. Um, we should put a um, dollar amount on what the cost of invasive species are. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how Billions. you would. Oh, I'm sure. Billion. Yeah. Um. There's so one. one more that I definitely want to talk about that's interesting to me is is uh, mountain goats. Yeah. I'm using oh, Montana yeah. as the example because. Mountain goats are, are native to certain mountain ranges in Montana, and they're not native to other mountain ranges. So they're just basically, they weren't found in the archaeological record. There's no evidence that they existed there for, you know, in the last several hundred years. But now they're doing well. And interestingly, and maybe this is mostly anecdotally, but I don't think entirely, but it seems like the mountain goats are doing better in the ranges where they were not native, like the Crazy Mountains, the... Absorca Beartooth, throughout Yellowstone, the Gallatin Range, the Bridger Range, and less good in their ranges where they were native throughout, like the Bitterroot and all of that far western northern northern Montana. And so it's, what is going on there is it's a super interesting question that we don't know the answer to. But and are there gonna be the my big question is, are there gonna be unintended consequences from these mountain goats being in those areas? And I don't know. You think I mean what do you think? History says every reintroduction or relocation of species has unintended consequences. So far, the the unintended consequence rate has been one hundred percent. So, <laughs> well, I guess I, I'm I'm will going it be to the level of us of uh, you know of having detrimental impacts on the things that we care about? Yeah, I I don't know, and I've shot two non. I've shot two mountain goats in areas where they were not endemic. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm just I love them. I think they're cool. I'm glad they're taking advantage of those habitats. But I do think over time we yeah. will realize there has been some change to. Yeah, to and I think one of the big questions to me that I know that multiple people have tried to answer, and there's never been like a. It's not like a hard yes or no, but like, are they impacting bighorn sheep populations? Yeah, because that's sheep, what probably. that's like. I mean, at least the big forward facing species that they're going to overlap ranges with that we can think about anyway. And bighorn sheep, and they're very valuable to people. I mean, people put a high value on bighorn sheep. The tags are super hard to draw. Like look at the auction tags like, and what those go for. And so if mountain goats are having impacts to bighorn sheep, then I feel like we'll have a cultural problem where people get fired up and, and want to do something about it. But it's there's so many factors that are going to influence, you know, the health of a bighorn sheep population. It's pretty hard to pinpoint what it is. And it's like, are mountain goats having an impact? Probably a little bit. Is it a big impact? Who knows? Yeah. So eating all that grass up like, there, or the little grass that there is. Yeah, it's like, and, and then yeah, yeah. And but that's the thing. It's like I feel like winter range. There's probably some overlap on winter range, but probably. Largely no, you know, bighorn sheep are moving to the lower elevations while mountain goats are just crazy and living off these lichens up on the (laughs) high mountain. You know, they might drop down a little bit, but uh, that's usually where it's like your, you know, funnel point where there's going to be, you know, more competition for resources. So, yeah. And then, so why did they, uh, it was kind of not Montana centric, but was it Oregon where they did like what land seedle? Yeah. So there was like the Olympic National where they were, like, trying to remove a ton of mountain goats, and they had they had hunters apply. Like, you had to, like, submit, like, your resume kind of to go try to r- remove these mountain goats. And I I think it was, like, a... 
but why, I don't think why it, did I don't they think do they that? I don't think they said that was a success or a failure. Really, they're like, yeah, we got some, but they didn't like go and get all of them. <laughs> but what was um, the concern there? Like that they're not native to this mountain range. I think some of that's like plant species. Like I think. I don't know. And it, and it, I think it, as National Park Service, they just kind of took a stance at, like, you know, we're going to try to manage for native species. And so, because they did that in Grand Teton, too. They removed mountain goats in Grand Teton. Um, they're throughout a lot of Yellowstone, too. But Yellowstone hasn't taken a stance of, like, they're not, they haven't gone in and are going to shoot a bunch of them yet. So, I don't know. It's, it's super interesting. Mountain goats are, I think they're the, one of the coolest species out there. Just oh, where yeah. they live, the landscapes they live in. But, um, Yeah. Maybe there's some unintended consequences. I, so. I would bet everybody listening has a non-native species within an hour drive of their house. Most likely it's a Eurasian collared dove. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe or, in or their backyard fish. right now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then if you factor in plants, oh, man, that's a whole other. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, I don't know. This is a... It's probably uh, too many topics to cover in one podcast. We're already pushing 30 minutes here, but uh, I don't know. I get fired up about this stuff it's super interesting to just think about what could happen what already did happen because there's so many examples of the past of you know things that we have done that we're like oh man why did we do that and i'm sure that that's happening right now <laughs> as well yeah. like there are there are things that we are doing currently that are not gonna have the the outcome we hope yeah we didn't even get to cheat grass yeah. oh man my my least favorite of all <laughs> Invasive plant species, but the non-native chucker loves cheatgrass. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Oh man, Michael, you running for office, man? You you're you're on like on the right track with this. Get rid of those horses thing. So, uh, yeah. When's the next election next year? Yeah, yeah. I'll be running. All right. So vote for me. All right. <laughs> right in. Right the in. horses, all the wild horses, will be gone if you vote <laughs> for me. <laughs> Good luck with that. There might be some. Uh, more invasive species in our lake, though, like lakes, like uh -oh. introducing some mm -hmm. grass. And All right, <laughs> just kidding, guys. Just kidding. <laughs> All right, I think that camera's about to hit its uh, limit yeah. on recording. So, thanks for uh, watching and listening, guys. Oh, it did. It oh. did hit its limit. Well, you can't so. see me right now. I'm, I'm invisible. <laughs> see you guys. Thanks for watching. <laughs>